Welcome to episode 39 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and all sorts of other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher. And joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now. And Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. Today's episode is a Q&A episode where we discuss a few different topics. We talk about how you can eat more food if your gut is pretty heavily compromised. We talk about how to support your digestion and restore gut health using nutrition and supplements. We also discussed whether food excipients and ingredients like citric acid, ascorbic acid, and soy lecithin are harmful and whether they should be avoided. We also discuss why body odor and skincare needs depend on our health state, what personal care ingredients we should be using and avoiding, and why beauty care and skincare products aren't the solution for various skin symptoms, whether that's acne, dry skin, rosacea, eczema, psoriasis, or any other skin issues. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer on a future Q&A episode, you can send those in to j at jfeldmanwellness.com. That's j-a-y at jayfeldmanwellness.com. Or if you are watching this episode on YouTube, you can leave a comment uh, with your question and I will add that to the list. If you are new to the Energy Balance podcast, then I'd highly recommend that at least after this episode, you go back and listen to episodes one through seven, where we really took some time to set a foundation as far as the bioenergetic view of health and nutrition. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where I'll link to any of these studies or articles or anything else that we discussed throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any of the symptoms that we discussed today, whether that is various gut health issues or digestive issues or various symptoms related to skin health or autoimmune conditions, or if you're dealing with constant cravings and hunger, low energy, joint pain, weight gain, poor sleep, hormonal imbalances, or any other low energy symptoms or conditions, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll walk you through the main things that you want to do as far as diet and lifestyle are concerned, so that you can learn how to maximize your cellular energy, which is the key to resolving all of these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, let's get started. So Jesse asks, what can I eat if it hurts to eat anything? Uh, she says specifically, she, I'm assuming this is her, but she mentioned dealing with celiac psoriasis, biliary, biliary cholangitis, and uh, she mentioned some other symptoms as well as far as SIBO symptoms and uh, lower back pain, some other liver dysfunction, jaundice, nausea, things like that. Um, and basically she was saying that she's trying to eat more to support her metabolism and thyroid, but she is having trouble eating enough. And this isn't all that uncommon either. I mean, especially, you know, I think part of it is a bias just from the types of clients who I'm working with. A lot of times, you know, some of them are generally healthy and just looking to make some improvements, but some are in kind of more uh, complicated situations like this. And so like these, these situations aren't entirely uncommon where it's hard to even get to those starting places of something like eating more, which is, you know, as we talked about, one of the first things that we have people do. So sometimes it's even tough for people to get to a point where they can do that. Uh, so just to start, I mean, the way I would start with a situation like this is firstly trying to find the foods that the foods and specifically the types of foods that are digested best and that don't cause the nausea and all of these other symptoms, the, um, the pain and uh, SIBO symptoms and whatever else. So I think it's helpful to first consider different macronutrients determine how well you digest different forms of proteins, different forms of carbs and fats. And so again, a lot of this is experimentation and seeing how you feel with certain types of foods at certain meals. But that can be a really helpful entryway into determining maybe where some of those deficits are digestion-wise, as far as is there problems digesting protein, problems digesting fat, are there different overgrowths that are leading to the consumption of the carbohydrates before you can consume them. So that I think is kind of first step, which is 
going to then very much change the next answer of what actual foods would you eat. But I would say, you know, as far as the carb side goes, even if you are dealing with some sort of overgrowth or dysbiosis or, um, you know, small intestinal issue, uh, whether it's fungal or bacterial, uh, generally the very quickly digesting carbs are still okay. You know, maple syrup and honey tend to be good ones. Again, it, it, it does depend on the in individual, but those often are okay. Juices are normally okay. Uh, sometimes whole fruits and starches can be tougher, especially if there's SIBO or some sort of intestinal overgrowth. So I would start with the simplest, easiest to digest sugars, which maple syrup, honey, juices, and occasional white sugar, depending on the context, would be a good start there. From the fat side, um, I would say in general, I don't know, you can maybe uh, mention if you have any different experience, but for the most part, I don't see too much variation as far as digestibility between the types of kind of healthier saturated fats. Pro as far as protein goes, sometimes it can be easier to digest something like dairy. Sometimes that can be harder. The same thing goes with eggs. Some people do fine with red meat and they can have a lot of it. Some people, you know, maybe tending towards like chicken or, or fish for, and seafood for a period of time can be easier. But a lot of this does depend on the individual and kind of working your way up with the foods that you respond to really well and allowing yourself to eat more and more of them um, to a point where these things aren't causing like you have the fuel needed to at least start to be able to address these issues with either other supplements or other foods or, or whatever kind of improve digestion from the start. And the other side of this too, which I'll, I'll let you touch on is uh, regardless of whether you're doing well with these foods or if you're struggling with some of them, something that can be helpful is supporting digestion. Um, so supporting your ability to digest fats or carbs or protein. And uh, Jesse mentioned specifically some liver type issues, which would uh, likely suggest some issues digesting fat again not always but more than likely so um yeah do you want to touch on that mike uh yeah i would just say so first of all with celiac psoriasis and biliary cholangitis um a lot of those are considered autoimmune diseases yeah all of them yeah so i would a lot of them and like with celiac and psoriasis it all specifically psoriasis it implies probably some overgrowth going on and some endotoxemia mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. psoriasis is usually has been associated with endotoxin in different studies um so what i would focus on would still be the ease of digesting of foods but as, even before maple syrup and honey i would say fruit juice with a, a fructose to glucose ratio of one to one would be really important for digestion and I would say when taking in these foods, um, you probably, and with the small and bacterial overgrowth, you may want to take some things to help tame that overgrowth while mm -hmm. you're digesting your foods consistently. Um, and this could be things like certain herbs, uh, certain, again, some of the fats will help to clear out the small intestine, but it's kind of this, in this particular case, it's a little bit difficult because you have celiac and if you've just been diagnosed recently and you've been eating gluten all this time, you probably have some pretty bad damage to your small intestine um, and your ability to absorb. And then with psoriasis, it implies your gut barrier is impaired. So you're leaking whatever you're eating into the gut. And then with biliary cholangitis, you have an uh, issue going on with bile acids and, and uh, the bile acids and the, the biliary tract being irritated, um, being inflamed. So it's good, like it kind of makes a, it hard to to formulate a diet in this situation because yeah. <laughs> you have quite a few things going on. But I would say stick with very easily digested foods, have them go with some antimicrobial compounds. This could be different herbal products. You have to be, I can't, I, mean, I can't recommend specific ones here per se because it's, it's such a specific case and you have right. a lot going on. And I don't know what's going to bother your liver, what's going to bother your small intestine, or what's going to bother your biliary tract. So it's a little bit of a trial and error. Um, and then you, I would say to, to stick with animal protein sources and to start because of the autoimmune issues and the leakiness of the digestive tract, I would avoid any serious possible allergens mm -hmm. um, that a lot of people generally have. So that could be eggs and dairy. Um, and then introduce them maybe a little bit later because the basis here is to try and find foods that are easy to digest to start that don't cause issues and then build up slowly with those. Right. Um, so there's that. And, uh, and then the other thing is for fats. 
um, the fats can be helpful if you didn't have the biliary cholangitis mm-hmm. because with SIBO and with psoriasis and celiac, they can help with healing the, the intestinal lining and preventing endotoxemia and um, like aiding in those capacities. So I would try maybe to stick to, to, again, the saturated sources, but maybe some coconut oil to start because it may not uh, require bile acid for absorption and utilization. And then maybe move into things like butter, which also has some shorter chain fatty acids and medium chains in it that can be easier and then move from there. And that's assuming you don't have a severe dairy allergy or something like that. Maybe you can try uh, cocoa butter, or beef tallow or macadamia nut oil, um, which is mostly monounsaturated um, and pretty easy to digest without the bio, without like an adequate amount of bile acids. So I would stick with like easy foods like that to start and start with what you can find what works for you find what fruit juices work for you orange juice pineapple juice pomegranate juice grape juice are good options and the reason we're choosing these is because the plant compounds in them are protective against some of the um some of the different bacteria uh fermenting them and the one-to-one fructose to glucose ratio also allows your intestines to absorb them pretty efficiently um, so that's helpful. The reason I say to stay away a little bit from maple syrup and honey to start is because the honey is mostly fructose. So if you're not good at absorbing fructose, if your intestine is damaged, then the bacteria in the gut um, can ferment that fructose and create endotoxin. And that can flare up psoriasis and the biliary cholangitis and well, the celiac, well, yeah, and the damage with the celiac disease. And then the maple syrup for most people is usually fine, but it also has a lot of inulin in it. And it, which is a, which is a type of fiber. So if you're eating a lot of it, you can get a lot of inulin. And then if you have an overgrowth, it could, it could cause, um, it can cause you to flare up with that. So low fermentable foods, those are the fruit juices. Some of the ones I mentioned, um, solid fat sources, maybe to start maybe coconut oil, macadamia oil, and then maybe butter and then, uh, animal sources of protein. And then as far as specific supplements to try the herbs, you got to try, I can't recommend a specific one because I don't know what's going on, but a list of possible options to try to help. Oregano oil can be helpful, um, and I th- that should be taken with a fat. Uh, cinnamon oil can be helpful, and that has to be taken again with a fat, because they will <laughs> basically burn your intestine without it. And you got to be careful, though, because you already have a lot of damage going on. So it's you have to be very careful in what you take and see how you feel and make sure they're diluted well with fats. Um, then different tinctures can help, whether it's like different things like cat's claw or pau diarco, um, and then different supplements like monolaurin. And then those are all, those are all, or, or even a grapefruit seed extract. Those have all antibacterial, antifungal, antimicrobial compounds in them. But then there's also going to be a need to heal the digestive tract. And this can include taking things like adequate B vitamins to rebuild, to provide for a rebuilding of the layer. They're necessary for uh, like cell division and cell growth and um, healing that intestinal lining. And you probably have deficiencies if you had celiac disease. Um, Adequate zinc, uh, particularly zinc carnosine is very effective at healing the gut lining, at least in the studies that I've seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you don't tolerate something like collagen hydrolysate, then looking into some different amino acids to help with healing the gut can be helpful, like glycine and taurine, which will all, may also help with the biliary issues because um, those are the main components that bile acids are conjugated with. Um, and then from there, also looking into some of the fat-soluble vitamins for immune function and basically just re- rebuilding everything nutrition-wise and diet-wise and then making sure to keep bacterial overgrowth in the intestine low with those com- compounds. And, and it's going to take time over time. Uh, to get things back. And then specifically for the bile acid issue, biliary cholangitis, uh, TUDCA, T-U-D-C-A, uh, which is toro urso deoxycholic acid, which is a type of water-soluble bile acid, can be pretty helpful at inhibiting the inflammation. Um, and there's some studies on PubMed that they look at that specifically for this condition. It's a little, it's not too expensive. You don't need a script for it. You can buy it over the counter. But again, you got to be careful and you got to look at what's going on. Um, and I, the combination of tudka, taurine, and glycine with some of the fat solubles can be pretty helpful for the liver. And an auto ad- adequate protein is helpful for the liver, and adequate B vitamins are helpful for the liver. Um, so yeah, and the thing is, keep in mind is this is just this one takes time because the intestinal damage 
you got to heal and but at the same time to heal it you need to absorb your nutrients but when your intestines are damaged you can't absorb too well so it takes time for the body to correct itself um and it may be a little while before you can take enough um food and whatnot to be able to handle something like thyroid or increase your metabolism got to get the intestines working appropriately and the biliary tract working appropriately again and getting the endotoxin from psoriasis down lower so th those would be my general options without knowing you personally those and i can't give you any direct recommendations those would be like general ideas to to think about and then even something like um number one getting adequate sleep at night and um you know, putting red, getting exposure to sunlight and putting red light on your belly and stuff like that to help heal in that capacity would be really helpful as well. Um, all these different lifestyle factors, uh, and like for a while, probably keeping extra exercise lower and keeping like emotional stress lower. So you don't start diverting blood flow from the already damaged areas. Yep. To, to end on a couple of things there, just in talking about the maple syrup and honey, of course, with all the foods, but also I know you had mentioned some hesitations there. Of course, I, I think they're still worth trying, especially because of the, the antimicrobial compounds that are in there that could protect uh, the fructose and the inulin from consumption by bacteria. But of course, try it and see, uh, see how it goes. Also, as far as the antimicrobials go in general, you know, you had mentioned a bunch of those herbal ones. We talked through these in more detail in another episode. So I'll link to those where we, you know, talk through a bunch of different herbal um, antimicrobial options. The other thing too, again, depending on the context, depending on, you know, if you've had SIBO testing or any, like depending on the context again, uh, sometimes pharmaceutical antibiotics can be a better approach, especially for somebody or pharmaceutical pharmaceutical antifungals, uh, especially for somebody who's so sensitive to things. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say I would, you know, I think it's worth trying the herbal ones probably first, seeing how you respond. Sometimes they can have effects that are kind of separate from the antimicrobial effects that for somebody who's pretty sensitive might not you know, be able to get the doses high enough, at least in a reasonable amount of time, or might just be too sensitive and not respond well. So Again, all, all depends on context, but I think that's just a few other factors to consider there. Yeah. But again, the whole idea is just keeping it easily digested and rebuilding the intestinal right. lining and the nutrition to do that. And then event and keeping stress low and adjusting lifestyle while you're healing. It may take it may take a couple months to get back to at being least. able to eat. Yeah, to being able to at least eat regularly again. Because you have damage to the small intestine, you have leaky gut and endotoxin going in implied by the psoriasis, and then you actually have damage implied to the liver with biliary cholangitis and actual irritation to the to the biliary tract. Because anything with the gallbladder tends to go with the liver directly because the gallbladder is just a little storage organ underneath the liver. Just, I mean, there's more to it, but it's just a little storage organ with the liver that secretes and stores bile. So it's inflamed. You have to assume something's going on there might be something going on with the liver as well, but you already mentioned um, jaundice and nausea and feeling full uh, after just a little bit of food, which can imply issues with the liver. It also can imply the small intestine bacterial overgrowth, and it also can imply something going on with the stomach as well. Yeah, low stomach acid. Yeah. So, and that's something else to consider for a while too. I know we didn't mention it was either digestive enzymes and maybe some stomach acid support. And with everything that we mentioned, I think it's really important to point out that you got to try and see and you have to be very careful and with all the conditions going on i would work hand in hand with a doctor or somebody who can monitor to some extent so that you, you know in case something happens um or someone who's on board in case something happens whether it's a natural doctor or whatever it is they can help you make corrections and whatnot and help with different symptoms and and monitor things as they go on from uh like a like looking at different lab tests and things like that would be really helpful. So yeah, that's what I, I would, I would think that digestive enzymes and stomach acid would help just to, you know, keep whatever's going on in the stomach, keep the bacteria down, some uh, herbal stuff to help keep what's going on in the small intestine down um, and then easily digested stuff to start so that you can avoid uh, like fermentation that you can get the nutrition in easily without having your intestines working too hard. Yeah. Also, I know you had mentioned a couple months of, you know, this may be taking a couple months. Typically, 
just between all the testing, especially in, in a situation like this, I think it would take quite a bit longer, at least in my experience. These things would take a long time to flesh out, both sorting out like the responses to things and testing new things, experimenting with the different all the different supplements, all the different aspects of, of digestion and intestinal health, and, um, yeah. microbial balance and things. Uh, it can be tricky and take time, but yeah. And for the beginning, it's going to, it's going to be about going back down to, to zero for a while and maybe having only three or four foods that you are okay digesting and stuff, and then slowly adding on and seeing how it goes from there. And then over time, as context change, more things will be adjusted and more things will be able to be handled and mm. it can make things a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you kind of mentioned this, but just again, to put it in context, the goal here is like kind of bigger picture. The goal is to work to a point where you can eat and digest your food well enough to get enough nutrients to support your metabolism, which is the, and she mentioned this, but, but just for anybody else, which is the, key to fixing these things kind of bigger picture as far as the main determinant that's going to determine stomach acid production digestive enzyme production movement throughout the intestines liver health you know all of these things do come back to metabolism and it's just it can especially in a situation like this there's various things to use to help to get to a point where you can't even try to um i mean where you can even get enough fuel to support a higher metabolism and potentially get to a point where you can use certain substances that might even help uh, support you, you know, on the larger metabolic scale, something like thyroid, which she mentioned, mentioned wanting to support her thyroid too. So um, I know, I think it's worth mentioning also because sometimes people want to jump to those things, jump yeah. to something like thyroid or progesterone or pregnenolone or high doses, niacinamide or whatever it is. And in a case like this, more often than not, I would expect it to, uh, make the situation worse if you can't eat enough to supply enough fuel to support those things it'll end up just causing more stress so it is a bit of a balancing act kind of slowly working up uh in that direction until you can tolerate those things um yeah. and then and then working in tandem to help keep things clear and kind of it's a it's a balancing act <laughs> yeah it's going to be hard to do thyroid if you can't eat enough it, the progesterone may help some of those may help, but even without eating enough, it can still, it, you may not be able to support the metabolic boost. So yeah. it's kind of a, it's a rough spot to be in for a little while. Um, and then just take time, yeah. rest and time and good food. Um, and maybe some components to help with digestion. Yeah. All right. So Dominic asked uh, about citric acid and ascorbic acid. Are they really as harmful as Ray Pete has mentioned? So, uh, citric acid and ascorbic acid. Well, ascorbic acid is vitamin C, or at least generally considered vitamin C. And citric acid is an acid that comes from a lot of citrus uh, plants, fruits, and things that gives it kind of the sour taste. And these are also both used as preservatives. So they're found in tons of different packaged foods. Uh, industrial made, though. Those ones aren't from fruits or anything. It's industrial produced oftentimes right. by like a fermentative process of different uh, molds. Right. So, so and that's what I was going to get at is that these are used in a lot of different packaged foods, sometimes juices as well, which is pretty common. And citric acid that you're finding in juice, naturally, not such a big deal. But as you said, these are, these are components that are typically produced industrially. And as you mentioned, they're also typically produced using black mold. So uh, the concerns here and, and why Ray Pete has mentioned that they can be pretty harmful is not actually the citric acid itself, like the purified citric acid per se, uh, which in a high enough dose would be a problem. But when you're talking about it as a preservative on its own, it's really fine. The concern is the contaminants, the contaminants that are getting through from the industrial industrial production. Uh, a lot of times, if it's something that's produced from, you know, involving molds, you're concerned about mold contaminants, which people can be very, very sensitive to and can kind of trigger and trigger an immune response. So, an inflammatory response in so, very small amounts too i think it's important right. to point out right exactly yeah so that's really the concern is contamination rather than the the citric acid or ascorbic acid itself and you know and beyond just mold too i mean you have all the other um i don't know solvents and whatever else is used in the industrial process that yeah. could end up contaminating too even heavy metals and i mean ray pete's qualms with 
uh, ascorbic acid were related to have too much heavy metals in the production process and having found that there was a decent amount in the new powders. Um, and the thing is specifically for ascorbic acid, you can meet it with other supplements with uh, citric acid is a preservative. No one really supplements with that per se, but right. the, the ascorbic acid, the vitamin C can be met with others, with other foods and supplements. I mean, if you're eating a high fruit diet, um, with decent amounts of fruit juice, you can add things like powdered camu camu or frozen acerola cherry or powdered acerola cherry. They're, they're not too expensive to add on a regular basis. Uh, I know there's people out there who talk about taking excessive numbers of grams of vitamin C on a regular basis. Um, I don't know if it's, that's, I don't really know if that's necessary. I mean, if you're having like a gram or two grams a day, just from your regular diet, from whatever, uh, fruits and vegetables you're eating. And maybe if you want to supplement a little extra with camu camu or acerola cherry, or even eating specific fruits like kiwis or stuff like that, which have decent amounts or oranges or, uh, anything, any, uh, any of those fruits. Um, and there's, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty ubiquitous in fruits. Yeah. Decent amount of pineapple and, and yeah. And it's the other thing is a lot of the vitamin C in those studies perform from the fruits directly or from powdered camu camu or from acerola cherry or even like kiwi or pineapple perform better than the synthetic vitamin C supplement um, as far as like antioxidation and and different components like that. And I think it's probably safer to to get it from those areas anyway. As far as the citric acid goes, the most if you're finding this in packaged foods. The main place I think you would find it if you're following some of the principles we talk about would most likely be the fruit juice. Um, if you're going to be getting it from fruit juice, uh, ideally, the the gold standard for fruit juice is 100% organic, 100% juice, not from concentrate. Uh, then after that, you can go to regular juice, not from concentrate. Then after that, you can go to organic juice from concentrate. Then after that, you and it just goes down the line and eventually you get to after juice from concentrate, like regular juice from concentrate. And then they have like the added components. Uh, you can get citric acid, ascorbic acid and whatever else, the less components added, the better. I mean, and you're not going to be able to have the optimal juice in all situations, especially if you're traveling or if money is a concern or anything like that. So the idea is to just be, like try the juice out, see how you feel and work with the best of what you got. I mean, sometimes it just comes down to that. Sometimes you're going to have your juice with citric acid in it and it just is what it is. Um, so it's just, I mean, ideally you, you would want like, uh, uh, just a, like a fresh squeezed juice or a hundred percent juice, even if it's pasteurized, that would be ideal. But again, life, sometimes life throws you lemons and you can't make the ideal lemonade. So you add a little citric acid to it. <laughs> um, you just got to deal with what you have on hand and not having it would be better than having it, but some, and it can cause issues for people. It can cause irritation. It can cause allergic responses. But if that's what you got for the moment, then, I mean, sometimes having some juice with citric acid is better than not eating at all. Yeah. So. Yeah. And there's, I mean, beyond the juice, there's a lot of other foods that it's used as a preservative in, um, like a lot of packaged foods. So as you said, for people around the go a lot or traveling, it's, it's very hard to avoid. I think it's worth mentioning too, that if you're not noticing negative effects, I would, I, and you're kind of getting to this, but if you're not responding poorly to it, then it's probably helping you more than harming you assuming you're in tune with your body and everything's pretty not good the citric acid though the food that you're eating yeah i'm saying the food overall is probably still net beneficial and i wouldn't worry about the citric acid yeah but if you have a if you have a choice of one with and one without i would definitely choose without if you're responding negatively to it which is not uncommon i would intentionally avoid it uh as much as possible but it can also depend on one brand versus another how much is in there all that stuff so if you're responding negatively, it's something to consider that might be causing an issue. But if you're not, I think generally it's okay to be eating those foods. Again, yeah. in context. In context, yeah. I would say my my personal choice is to avoid it. But if I yeah. have to eat it sometimes, and if it's like if I'm traveling or where I ran out of juice and wherever I am, I only have the option of getting it with it, then I'm just going to drink that juice and that's fine. Yeah. And not not stress about it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And that's a huge part too, is not stressing about it because oftentimes the stress is worse than whatever reaction we could have had, or it makes the reaction worse. And there's a, another kind of similar component that I'll see talked about a lot in like a similar context is soy lecithin, which is found often in chocolates. And I would put it in kind of the same category here where it's, I'm not particularly concerned about it, especially if you respond well to it. 
I think it's less likely to be causing an issue than something like citric acid is. And again, if you're feeling all right with it, then I think it's it's not really a big deal. I know that they're, the reason I mention it is because I've uh, people have mentioned to me that they're very concerned about it. And um, I think it's less than ideal, but slightly, you know, it's not a huge concern. Yeah. Yeah. But avoid if you can and whatever, if you have to deal with it when you have to deal with it, then that's just how it goes. Yeah. And on the list of foods to avoid or things to adjust in your environment, at least for me, those things are relatively low. The higher things would be like a lot of PUFA or like, like, uh, some of the industrial, like more industrial additives, like silicon dioxide or titanium dioxide, or a lot of the, all the different coloring agents. And the biggest one for me is PUFA. Like if I have, if I'm somewhere and the only option I have is a bag of chips fried in soybean oil or sunflower oil or rapeseed oil or whatever it is, like, I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to, I'm ra- I'm just not going to eat at that point. Um, and but if there's, you know, if there's some jerky and it has a little teriyaki sauce on it and there's some soy in there, I'm going to have some jerky. <laughs> or yeah. if it's, if there's some, some juice that has some citric acid and ascorbic acid, it, I'm going to have the juice. So like it, a lot of these things come down to your individual context and what your boundaries are with different things. Some people are going to have their potato chips at that point in time. For me, I'm not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It really, really depends. It also depends on how long before your next meal, how long until you get some yeah. carbs. I've, you know, I've had situations traveling where it was either um you know food fried in in pufa or not eating for an extended period of time so um it depends on on all those things yeah all right lewis asks what does our personal care routine look like and what ingredients should we be avoiding in shampoos soaps moisturizers etc mike do you want to start us off (laughs) sure um so basically i would say that as far as ingredients to avoid I think there's so there's such a large list of ingredients to worry about that I think the strategy both you and I have adopted and you know I'll let you talk about your individual strategy is to use as little as possible and as far as skincare ingredients it's kind of hard to find a single ingredient so like if I was going to use something for example I use I'll use cocoa butter on my skin if it's uh, dry or if I have like an irritated spot or something like that um, and then for what I use for brushing my teeth, I use just activated charcoal capsules. Um, and then as far that as you so, break open, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, break, <laughs> I break, I open up the capsules and then I, I just put them on my tongue and then I brush my teeth with that. And then as far as what soap I use, I just use, I think it's the Dr. Bronner soap. Um, mm. And that's just like a bunch of, it's like coconut oil and some essential oils. And that that's basically it. I try to avoid pretty much everything else. A lot of people don't realize, but things that you put on your skin can accumulate directly in your body and your bloodstream. And this is particularly true for very sensitive areas or very thin skinned areas like armpits and groin, where a lot of people, they they talk about um, the aluminum in, uh, in deodorants actually causing issues over time. So I tend to avoid all that stuff. Um, as much as possible, just because we can go through all the different compounds and chemicals, sodium lauryl sulfate, dimethicone, et cetera, all these different problematic uh, compounds, especially using over time endocrine disruptors. But the, basically, the, what it comes down to is avoiding most skincare products and using things as simple as possible. Um, so yeah, the, my basic is the activated charcoal for my teeth. Uh, and then the what it is the cocoa butter for my skin and then just the Dr. Bronner soap to, to rinse off. And one thing I like to point out is that your skin has, your skin is a very potent endocrine organ and it has a lot of protective oils on it in and of itself. So scrubbing your body down twice a day with soap may also not necessarily be a good idea. Maybe just focusing on areas that, um, that you can develop a lot of sweat in, which is your groin and under your arms. Uh, that's, that's what I tend to do is focus on those areas. And this, this becomes more important, uh, or I guess this, the issue of smelling bad or uh, needing all these products only become more important when you're having issues as far as diet goes and health and whatnot. And for me, I know that my, my body odor, depending on, is, is really dependent upon what I eat. So if I eat something that doesn't necessarily agree with me, my symptom is I, I tend to sweat. And I'll sweat out whatever I just whatever I just ate. 
and it'll change my body odor. So when I stay within, you know, the foods that I know work for me, and that's just from self-experimentation, I tend not to sweat very much, uh, especially from under my arms. And I tend not to produce much of a body odor. Whereas if I eat something that I know is bothering me and particularly something that I've noticed, and I don't know if there's, I haven't checked for scientific literature on it, but things that I notice is if, if I have something that is bothering me as far as fermenting in my colon and causing issues, that that will usually produce a body odor for me pretty, like pretty significantly. As soon as I notice I'm having issue and then I, I'll start to get a body odor. Or if I am like in a stressful situation, when I release stress hormones, whether it's uh, the catecholamines or after a while it's cortisol, then I, then I will start to have, um, like I call it stress sweat. And it's where my body odor will change. And basically it's like, it's interesting. At least I've always registered it as signaling that I'm under stress. Um, so that's, I try and keep it as basic as possible, try and use things that have one ingredient max, um, you know, charcoal for toothpaste, cocoa butter for my skin. I literally just buy a bag of cocoa butter pieces and that's what I use. That's it. So, and that's the same. And with supplements and stuff like that, I try to use only single ingredient supplements as well. So I'll buy a bulk powder of something if I'm going to try it, uh, or a, if it's a herb, just like a, a bulk product of the herb. So all those, and then if I was going to make something, I would probably buy bulk and then mix it myself. Unless the ingredients, unless the ingredients on the product are are solid, where it's just very of quite a just a few simple ingredients that you know what's going on. So if it was like, if you had, I don't know, some type like the Dr. Bronner soap is usually like some mix of coconut oil and some other oils and then essential oils where I know what they are, mm-hmm. then that's something that I would, that I would use. So I, that's where I tend to stick. I tend not to worry about all the different chemicals and which one's safe. Cause in most beauty products, most deodorant and whatnot, there's like 50 chemicals in the back. And you know, I don't, when, when it gets to that, even if all 50 were great, it's just too many. So I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to get involved with it. Yeah. Yeah, a ton of really good points that you brought up there. I mean, one really important one, especially at the end, is you know when you're taking something that has 50 ingredients, you would never take 50 supplements at once. And considering that whatever we're putting on our skin in general is going to be absorbed, you know, as you said, it simple is tends to be much better. But yeah, I mean, the whole this whole like skincare, beauty care, shampoo, soap. I mean, these industries have really shifted our perspective on like what healthy skin should be or or all of that and really what we end up doing is covering up all of the kind of problems with these products, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, super dry skin, you just get all these moisturizers. If it's pimples or acne, you're just using things, you know, anti-acne, whatever it is, creams or um, makeup, of course. And for smells as well, like you mentioned, you know, having a smell when you're under stress, when you're not eating well, you mentioned when you eat something that doesn't agree with you as far as your gut goes, which that, connection between gut and skin is is pretty well uh pretty well recognized especially in the alternative uh, circles so instead of acknowledging all these things and trying to improve our environment what the vast majority of people end up doing is just trying to cover up their basically dysfunction that's coming out in the form of skin or smell or whatever uh using these products so so the i think that's just kind of a helpful perspective to have and that's kind of what you're getting at where simple is better less is better and of course, there's going to be, especially when somebody's healing or when they're, you know, coming from these perspectives or coming from health issues or whatever, it's going to take time to get to a point where you maybe don't need as much. And so while you're in that period, you want to use things that are, uh, you know, that do have good quality ingredients and are avoiding certain other ingredients. And we'll discuss some options there more specifically. But the goal is to not have to use very many of those things. And not only is it because it's covering things up, but also a lot of the things that are being used end up making things a lot worse and uh, also furthering the need for them. So one thing that's really important to consider is that we have a microbiome on our skin and in our mouths. And of course, you know, we all know about the one that's in our gut. And so when we're using soap, which is antimicrobial, meaning that it's getting rid of uh, the microbes there, that's completely destroying our microbiome wherever we're using it and and so uh because of that virtually any soap or shampoo and this is actually something that ray pete's talked about is that any soap or shampoo is really an endocrine disruptor even if there aren't any toxic additives in there and that's because 
they are destroying that kind of natural flora there that assuming someone's relatively healthy should be um you know plays an important role in our health not just on our skin but but overall so we also removing the oils as well and that too, all the yeah. secretions that your skin has has a bunch of antimicrobial peptides and and all these different components and then any of the chemicals if they are, do have any small amount of endocrine disrupting properties i mean that can affect, uh, affect the endocrine disruption of the skin or the endocrine function of the skin yeah. so of trying to keep that in mind and and avoid it is 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 helpful um just overall i mean you have you all you have the floor but you also have the your your specific um your specific oils and your the specific mm -hmm. components of your skin if you keep stripping them off i mean i think it can cause issue, issues as well uh, i mean yeah. i know it's known in babies when they're first born when they come out if you remove the the protective covering that they have all over them they're at higher risk for developing different skin conditions and whatnot so a lot of the secretions are there uh and that's directly following after you know they can get like rashes and things like that if you just immediately bathe them and soak them down or remove the covering so i think now what they tend to do as best practice is you know wipe the baby down a little bit with a towel but leave the the rest of the protective covering on and i think this is a good example of you know what's going on with our skin as well where we our skin if you know especially if you're healthy is able to produce antimicrobial peptides and oils and whatnot that are protective and protect against infection and all these different areas and and dirt and whatnot because a lot of the surfaces of the body have compounds like in the gut mucus that that doesn't allow bacteria or microbes to adhere to the surfaces and the skin is similar to that it has a bunch of different protective factors including secretions of like things like lysozymes which are enzymes that can break down the bacteria and then maintaining a certain uh, a certain acid content on the skin and a certain level of dryness and moisture and so there's there's a very delicate system especially considering that you know Dr. Scholes and Head and Shoulders and Pantene were, haven't been around for the past you know 200 years before that the skincare was whatever you got in the garden or it was usually made out of some type of fat um, you know soap was usually made out of different fats and it, and uh, mixed with certain types of uh, essential oils. So that was generally how things go. And so that's why, for example, I tend to stick with using something like cocoa butter on my skin. Um, I find that it helps moisturize it a lot better in general. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that can be affected with these different soaps and products. And they've done a good job marketing them to people, but it doesn't, you know, I don't think that the marketing is really... <laughs> indicative of what, what can actually go what actually is helpful um mm -hmm. and i think a lot of the skin stuff is from an internal considerations more so than what you're externally complying uh, applying yeah 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 and it's a really great point that not only are these the soaps and shampoos going to be stripping the natural flora that's on our skin and hair but also removing all of those oils which you know they have another product for that you know you use the soap and then you use some sort of moisturizer oil type of thing to replace those oils um, or same thing with the hair where you use some sort of conditioner after, which is such a, it's a funny concept. I mean, especially when you talk about it in terms of, of a baby where this idea that they come out with this, the, whatever this, you know, they have this covering and we have this assumption that naturally how it's supposed to be is wrong. So then what, yeah, we have to bathe them in soap and water to get rid of it. And as you said, that would cause all these skin issues. It's, I mean, it's the same thing with our natural oils and, uh, when, you know, when we're not newborns. So, yeah, I think that that's important context. Uh, so considering that I don't use any soap or shampoo uh, when I shower, I just use water. And for me, that's enough. I do know for some people they do, you you know, even people who are trying to do this in kind of more minimal way for health reasons, they'll still, as you mentioned, use some soap maybe in like the smellier areas, armpits or groin. Uh, I know some people who will still do shampoo just less frequently and, and especially it's worth mentioning and this is uh, especially true for women or men with long hair where uh, when you're f if you're used to using a lot of soap or shampoo and yeah this goes for skin or hair if you're used to using a lot of soap or shampoo and your body is used to that it does take quite an adjustment period for it to get used to not doing those things and so you know it definitely would recommend working towards that slowly and otherwise you'll just be you know, you could just be really greasy and oily for a while. And um, yeah, so that's something to consider. But 
yeah, I, I don't use anything in that regard. Uh, as far as moisturizers go, you know, occasionally I'll use something you had mentioned. Um, cacao butter is an option. There are, you know, generally considering that the ingredients that are put on our skin are going to be absorbed and considering all these problems that we've talked about with PUFA, we want to be using saturated fat uh, as as a moisturizer. So cacao butter is an option. Coconut oil is an option, although sometimes it doesn't moisturize as well and can sometimes cause acne for, for certain people. I think it has op- a, for me, it's a drying effect too with coconut oil. Like right. it'll moisturize initially and then it'll, it'll, I think it just, it's absorbed so fast that it has like a slight drying effect. Whereas the longer chain fatty acids like cocoa butter um, seem to do a lot better for me and for other people I know. Yeah, I, I think some people have mentioned to me that they feel like the coconut oil just doesn't actually absorb. It just kind of covers it, but then the skin stays dry underneath. So I don't know which of those is kind of the more accurate view of it. But either way, it doesn't seem like the best option, although it's fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it necessarily health wise. Um, it just might not be as ideal. But some other options would be shea butter or mango butter or beef tallow. And a couple of the products that I'll mention actually use beef tallow in there as um, as their kind of moisturizing component. Another uh, one that people find to be really effective is squalane. And that's one that I like as well. That tends to work really well and, and often better than some of those fats. So on the moisturizing side, those would be the ones I would recommend. But as you mentioned, as far as just ingredients to use or to avoid, there's so many, there's a laundry list of ones to avoid. And as you talked about too, it's not only just one particular toxic ingredient, but also just the entire variety of ingredients. Or you mentioned essential oils, but of course, some essential oils can be problematic. And so uh, it, it really depends. Simpler is better. Uh, one thing, like one helpful resource, at least semi-helpful is the Environmental Working Group. They have a website, I think it's ewg.org. I'm not sure which it is, but I'll put it in the show notes. And they have a database where you can search for ingredients and they can, you know, they pull up some uh, some information about them and how quote-unquote safe they are. And that's at least a helpful starting point for ingredients that you're unsure about because, of course, they use the chemical names. And so it's not always clear what they are when it could just be something that comes from coconut, but they use the, the entire name. And so it, um, a lot of times it's hard yeah. to tell. So that can be a helpful resource. Uh, as far as places to, I mean, if you're not using just a single ingredient, there are some products that can be helpful. There's a handful of kind of smaller boutique companies, especially within the repeat sphere that I think are worth uh, are worth checking out for certain products. So I'll, I'll give uh, the names of a few of those now and I'll put them in the show notes and I'm sure there's going to be others that I'll miss. So if, you know, if anybody who's listening has, uh, has some that they'd like to mention just throw those in the comments or send me an email and i'll i'll put them in the show notes uh and my email is j at jfeldmanwellness.com uh so a couple of those companies one is cosma k-o-s-s-m-a another one is life giving store there's one on etsy called natural vitas v-i-t-a-s and it's one word and uh there's a couple others that i'm not sure if they're doing skincare or not but i know that they were at some point one is saturate uh, that's S A T U R E E, and then one is another one is absolutely pure. And I know that uh, that one used to do products, but I don't. I, the website seemed like it was down when I went to check. But anyway, I'll put the I'll put them on the show notes uh, so that people can take a look at those uh, kind of smaller, more boutique supplement companies or uh, skincare product companies. And then a couple that you might be able to find more easily at a store. Uh, one is Dr. Bronner's that you had mentioned. There's another called Desert Essence, which uh, they have a pretty wide variety of of products too. So those would be a couple to take a look at, or you could also make your own. I mean, there's a million different kind of uh, recipes or yeah. ingredient ideas for making your own products for any of these things that you do need. Again, with the idea that, you know, this is kind of that we're using less rather than more. And that these things aren't really solving any of the underlying issues that are leading to these problems. And I think that that's something that's really important to mention, too, is that if, you know, it's one thing to have maybe a little bit of dry skin as it's coming into winter or, you know, maybe after and you get out of a hot shower or something. uh, It's, you know, one thing to have a a couple of pimples here or there. But in general, when we're dealing with really bad body odor or, uh, you know, major kind of symptoms skin wise, it's it's a good sign that things are off health wise, and we you know alluded to the gut being an important component here. Hormones can also be a huge component here, and um, 
nutrient deficiencies are also very common. So some things to consider as far as nutrient deficiencies go would be zinc and vitamin A, which are often related to skin issues like acne or dry skin, if you don't have enough of those. Um, some things that can that I've seen really help with with clients who have some pretty noteworthy skin issues would be zinc and vitamin A, and, and then also sometimes progesterone and thyroid can make a really big difference there, uh, both in like skin complexion and quality and plumpness, uh, but also things like acne and dryness. Again, all of these have to be used in the right context. So assuming that you're doing all the other things nutritionally and lifestyle-wise, those can be helpful to add on top. Uh, collagen is another supplement that can be pretty helpful for improving skin quality and integrity. Uh, beyond also addressing gut health in, in general um, can make a big difference. Yeah, I'm a fan of vitamin E as well. Mm. I like I like uh, I I've used uh, pretty consistently for a little while. Health Natures vitamin E. I like that one. Um, and that's just I'm not plugging them or anything. There's no affiliations. That's just the one that I use and that I like and that I, you know it makes me feel good. Mm. Um, and then besides that, yeah, the cocoa butter. Just we just pick up one from Whole Foods and we we use that. My whole my whole family uses it. It just because it works so well. Um, so yeah, those those are the those are the, and then the Dr. Bronner soap. Um, those that's the one that I that I've used for a long time. You just got to be careful because it clogs the drain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might not be ideal in some situations. But. Yeah, and then as far as acne and the different things. I've also found besides the getting enough vitamin A and, and zinc, which, you know, I, I rec usually recommend to get from the diet. So liver and mm -hmm. oysters, I find yep. works the best. I find zinc supplements, like especially in hard doses, make me feel kind of weird. And I've gotten sort of weird effects from them that I didn't like and vitamin A as well. So I would, I tend to stick with foods for those. Um, but some some different ish some different foods can cause different things so for example i've seen people eating a lot of dairy if they don't tolerate it well that can give them acne and then i've seen um people not eating enough fat in their diet in general uh getting dry skin and and things like that so there's there's a host of different random different food issues i've seen people getting eczema from certain foods they removed there was one one girl i knew who was eating a lot of brown rice and she was getting eczema every winter, pretty bad on her legs. And when she stopped eating brown rice one winter, her eczema just completely went away. She never got it back mm. um, until she introduced brown rice again. But when it came, it wasn't as bad the next time it came back. So um, that's some, those just things like that. So you never really know what could be causing what. You got to sort of play around with it. But I've seen a lot of different food interactions cause different symptoms in people. Yeah. Alcohol is one that I've seen quite a few times causing rosacea or other skin issues for oh, yeah. a period of time after. Um, yeah, all sorts of hard to digest foods like legumes and raw vegetables yeah. and things can, ca can cause any of that. Or different allergy allergens causing weird symptoms for people. So I've seen people have like psoriasis breakouts after eating foods that they were allergic to. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and then when you move that, that food, it's like, oh, it's gone. Right. Rather than being, you know, an uncurable autoimmune disease that you have to take ridiculous biologic medications for that you can increase your risk for cancer and tuberculosis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, Oh, just don't eat this food. Yeah. yeah. And, and it goes, you know, in many cases, it's not that simple. Like allergies definitely could be part of it. Yeah. Uh, but of course the question is why is somebody necessarily allergic to those things? Why are they susceptible to that? Is there some immunodysregulation going on or hyperactivity? Are they eating enough? Where are all these other factors of, of health, uh, especially when it comes to autoimmune conditions, which are often characterized by excess stress hormones, low uh, low metabolism, low thyroid, gut dysfunction, and, and SIBO especially, especially when you're looking at something like rosacea, which is pretty well correlated with SIBO. Uh, and along with that too is one other factor in talking about gut irritation is gut motility, where a lot of times when uh, people are experiencing any sort of constipation, They'll, that'll coincide with acne or other skin issues. So rashes, weird rashes. Mm -hmm. I've seen that a lot. Yeah. And in that case, sometimes using things specifically to help stimulate motility like cascara, cascara sagrada, um, or using something like charcoal to bind up with those toxins. Those are things that can help in those situations and, you know, as kind of short-term products that, that might help with that particular time. 
uh, not as much as well. They can be long term solutions. It, it depends on what's causing the gut moti- the slow gut motility in the first place. And often thyroid function is pretty well tied to gut motility. So that would be kind of bigger picture focus there. Yeah. One thing I did want to add, just you know, as far as ingredients go to avoid, you know, some of the most common ones I talked about, like parabens, which a lot of the pro- the reason why I want to highlight that is because that's just like the tip of the iceberg. And so a lot of pretty awful products are ha- highlight that they're paraben free as if that means that they're healthy, the ingredients in there. So I think it's worth mentioning a lot of even just fragrance fragrances uh, can be problematic and have been shown to be carcinogenic and things like that. So even some of the really basic ingredients in a lot of soaps, whether it's hand soaps or, or body soaps for shower, uh, shampoos, any skincare products, a lot of them have some pretty negative effects and and uh, would probably be best avoided. So uh, yeah, I just thought it was worth mentioning those. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of the, cause the, I think the, the larger corporations caught on to people started to realize that the stuff they're putting out there was just straight garbage. Right. So a lot of people are like, Oh, well, parabens are a problem. And it's like the whole BPA thing. It's like, Oh, our bottles are BPA free. It's like, okay, so what now, what are you putting in that? It's like, Oh, we're putting in BPS, which is just as bad, if not worse. So, you know, it's, it, it's kind of, that's why it's really better to just stick with the simplest as possible to avoid the, this idea of these, all these different compounds. It's like, just cause it says it's organic or natural or whatever. When you go look on the backs, the ingredients that are organic are starred. And then the other stuff is just industrial chemicals. It's like, well, that's not helpful either. Yeah. Yeah. And this is important for, I mean, if you're using dish soap, it can be important too. I would, I would pay attention there. I mean, definitely look at the labels. It's worth, it's definitely worth, um, you know, the, the effort to, to, you know, consider these things. And yeah, a lot of the like natural house cleaners and things are, you know, they, they call them natural or they're supposed to be healthy or just as bad as the, you know, the conventional ones. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's definitely worth looking through those ingredients and, uh, and yeah, choosing, choosing the ones that, um, are the least problematic. To be fair, for some of the cleaners, some of the natural ones don't work as well as some of the industrial ones. So in those yeah. cases, it would just make sense to, number one, use them in an open-aired area. And then number two, make sure you're wearing gloves. It just, if you got to clean something and cause sometimes, you know, orange clean or, <laughs> you know, what that's that's like a generic, that's not really, I think, a natural one. But some of the like desert essence cleaners I've tried and they don't work as well as just if I have to use bleach, so I'm just going to use bleach. Um, and just make sure I wear gloves and I'm in a nice, nicely ventilated area. Yeah. Yeah. And it, the point of this is not to, you know, be entirely afraid of any of these toxic components, but be aware that they're there. Make the better choices when you can. If you can't, yeah, use gloves, you know, basic things. You know, if when we're talking about a dishwasher detergent, that's a little different from something that you're putting directly on your body too. You know, you could, you would at least hope that virtually nothing on that detergent is ending up on your on your dishware of course there there might be some so it's still important to consider but i would say less so so yeah and obviously a lot of the natural products tend not to work as well which can be a bit of a uh, of a hurdle but it's worth yep. sorting it out yep all right before we wrap up this episode i did want to mention one other part of my personal care routine that i had forgot to mention which was that I do use a shave oil that I actually make myself and is a combination of olive oil, MCT oil, and a couple drops of an essential oil. Normally I use sandalwood, uh, but I, yeah, I just wanted to mention that as one other thing or really the only thing that I use as far as personal care goes. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a like or comment if you're listening on YouTube. And if you are listening to the podcast on iTunes, and would be able to leave us a five-star rating or a review, I would really appreciate it. And if you have any questions that you'd like us to answer on a future Q&A episode, you can leave those in the comments if you are watching on YouTube, or send me an email at j at jfeldmanwellness.com. That's j-a-y at j-a-y feldmanwellness.com. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at anything that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any of the symptoms that we discussed today, whether that's gut and digestive symptoms or autoimmune conditions, whether they're related to skin or otherwise, or any other skin-related symptoms, 
or if you're dealing with low energy, constant cravings and hunger, joint pain, weight gain, brain fog, poor sleep, or hormonal imbalances, or any other low energy symptoms or conditions, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll walk you through the main things that you want to focus on as far as diet and lifestyle are concerned to correct that low energy issue and maximize your cellular energy. And I'll also explain in that energy balance mini course why restoring your cellular energy is really the key to resolving these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I will see you in the next episode.